Well, many of you have seen the musical Hamilton. It was released in 2015 to the public theater in New York. Just a few months later, to wild acclaim, it debuted on Broadway. Lin-Manuel Miranda spent seven years composing this musical that tells the life and the story of one of America's forgotten founding fathers, Alexander Hamilton. And he begins this play, this musical, by asking a question. And it goes like this. How does a bastard, orphan, son of a whore, and a Scotsman, dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean by providence, impoverished and squalor, grow up to be a hero and a scholar? It asks the question of how this young man who had been orphaned and found himself on the island of St. Croix with no future made his way to become one of the founding fathers of our nation. And the answer was largely because of his words. Alexander Hamilton not only made his way to the United States, enrolled in King's College, he fought in the Revolutionary War. He became President Washington's right-hand man. He rose to the place of Secretary of State. He wrote a defense of the Constitution known as the Federalist Papers, authoring 51 of the, the 85 essays in that document. His life shot up like a meteor because of his words largely, and his words also got him into a lot of trouble. The musical has introduced the story of his sordid affair with a woman and paying off that woman's husband to keep it quiet and to allow him to keep that affair going. Well, it was eventually found out that he was paying this man, and he was confronted about what was appearing to be the misuse of government funds. And he found himself at this moment of truth. And in this musical, there's a song called Hurricane. And he says this, When I was 17, a hurricane destroyed my town. I didn't drown. I couldn't seem to die. I wrote my way out, wrote everything down as far as I could see. I looked up, and the town had its eyes on me. I wrote my way out of hell. I wrote my way to revolution. I was louder than the crack in the bell. I wrote Eliza love letters until she fell. I wrote about the Constitution and defended it well. And in the face of ignorance and resistance, I wrote financial systems into existence. And when my prayers to God were met with indifference, I picked up a pen. I wrote my own deliverance. And then he says, I'll write my way out. Overwhelm them with honesty. This is the eye of the hurricane. This is the only way I can protect my legacy. And so Alexander Hamilton decided to write what was known as the Reynolds pamphlet. And trying to clear his name about any financial misdoings, he let everything out. And he told in detail about his affair. And in clearing his name, he wrecked his life. And there's a very touching and powerful scene where it zeroes in on Eliza, his wife, as she reads those papers and then is heartbroken. And she sings these words. You published the letters that she wrote to you. You told the whole world how you brought this girl into our bed. In clearing your name, you have ruined our lives. You and your words, obsessed with your legacy, your sentences border on senseless, and you're, uh, you're paranoid in every paragraph, how they perceive you. You, you, you. I'm erasing myself from the narrative. 
Let future historians wonder how Eliza reacted when you broke her heart. You torn it all apart. I'm watching it burn. And then she takes the letters that he had written her, that she had kept over the years, the love letters, and she lights them on fire and says, I'm burning the memories, burning the letters that might have redeemed you. You forfeit all rights to my heart. I hope that you burn. And in that very powerful moment, in a very symbolic gesture, we see all of Alexander Hamilton's life that had been so shaped powerfully by his words be burned up in that moment, his words burning. Lin-Manuel Miranda was invited to the White House to do a performance of this musical with some of the participants. And in the book Hamilton, the Revolution, we're told this. When Lynn told the audience at the White House that Alexander Hamilton embodies the word's ability to make a difference, he was thinking of all the good things that language can do. Hamilton reminds us that the American Revolution was a writer's revolution, that the founders created the nation one paragraph at a time. But words can also wreak havoc. They also tear down. The heart of Act Two which I just referenced, is a sequence of four songs that illustrate the destructive potential of language and the perplexing fact that Alexander Hamilton never used words more devastatingly than when he used them against himself. Now James, the writer of the New Testament document that we're studying, never saw this play. He lived thousands of years before. But if he saw the play, I think he would say, yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. This is exactly an illustration of not only the power of words, but the destructive nature of words. Already in this letter, we have seen this man write these words. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. If anyone thinks he's religious, or what we might call spiritual, and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion, their spirituality, is worthless. Today, in our study, we're going to pick back up on this theme as James circles back around and wants us to think again more deeply about the words that we use. And so let's dive into this and just break down that passage that I read from the book of James and see what it has to say about us and our lives and how it leads us to the grace of Christ. So James says in verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, as a person who, by and large, makes his living from teaching, this makes me really nervous. Uh, James seems to be shifting points he's making. We just looked at how he is addressing the issue of someone who says they claim to be a believer in Jesus, but there's no evidence of it in their lives. And maybe there was a person that was intentionally sowing this kind of teaching, and maybe that's why he brought this up. But nevertheless, he just tells those who teach that they will be judged with a greater strictness. I think there's a sense in which, yes, before God, we who teach are held to a higher level of accountability, but I think it's also among other people as well. I mean, who of us have not just had our hearts broken when we've heard of a well-known pastor or a church leader who has fallen because of impropriety? And we think that person should know better. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans says this, If you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, 
do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You abhor idols. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. So James says not many of you should become teachers because those of us who teach will be held to greater strictness. My wife and I had the privilege of being on a panel of leaders um, at a church in our town in Bryan, and uh, they were asking questions about all kinds of things. And I found it interesting that the pastor of this church told folks that growing up in his church, it was just assumed that the pastor was sleeping with people in the congregation. He, he thought that was normal. And I, I, I just, it broke my heart to, to think that someone who got up and taught people about the will of God could so blatantly break that, and the congregation, in some sense, being okay with that. James wants those who teach to know that they will be held to a greater strictness in judgment. And then he goes on and says this, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, also uh, able also to bridle his whole body. That word perfect there is that word that simply means mature, complete. We all stumble in many ways. And if no one stumbles, they have arrived, basically. He's able to bridle his whole life. James Woods here in his commentary, I think is helpful in understanding this, this verse. He says, James' purpose is to make the positive point that control of the tongue leads to a master control of ourselves and our lives. This teaching strikes us as, as so unexpected. It is not that a person strong enough to control the tongue is therefore also strong enough for every other battle. It's much deeper and more important than even that. It is rather that winning this battle is in itself a winning of all battles. Control of the tongue is so important. Controlling the words that come out of our mouth is so important. And James is going to highlight uh, this truth by, by pointing out a couple of illustrations. He says in verse 3, If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Think about this. A bit in a horse's mouth is able to control that beast. My daughter Miranda is taking horseback riding lessons, and she began riding this horse called Dooley. It's the one on the left, the brown horse. And I wasn't too nervous about that because standing full uh, length, uh, Miranda's taller than this horse. So I'm like, this is kind of manageable. But I was told that she's going to be in just a couple of weeks riding Tamara, which is this horse that is much bigger and much stronger. And to be frank with you, I was, I was really nervous about that. And that day, though, another person joined Miranda in her horse riding lessons, and it was about a seven-year-old girl, and she mounted this black horse that weighed, I don't know, 20 times her weight. And this horse went ever that little seven-year-old girl controlled it simply because of a little bit in its mouth. James goes on and says, Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. Now, that large ship that James was referencing was probably a ship on this graphic here. 
shipping and trading vessel. This is likely what Paul the Apostle was on when we're told in the book of Acts that Luke, his traveling companion, said that there were 276 persons on board this ship. It's one of the largest ships at the time. What would they think if they could see one of our large ships? This is the icon of the seas. It's a Royal Caribbean ship of $2 billion. It is literally a city on the sea. It is 1,200 feet in length. That's four football fields stacked side by side. This cruise ship has 20 decks. It's the largest in the world. It accommodates some 10,000 passengers and crews. It has seven pools, one of which is the largest on any ship. And it has the world's first onboard water park with six slides. There's theaters, casinos, and 40 different dining restaurants. And yet, this massive ship is controlled by such a small rudder. James goes on and says, So also the tongue is a small member. That is, it's a small part of our body, yet it boasts of great things. You think about that. Our, our tongue, how much does it weigh in comparison to the rest of our body? And yet, how much does it direct the course of our lives? So James wants us to be thinking about such a small part of us that has great potential for good, but also great potential for destruction. And he goes right into that in verse 6. He says, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Think about some of the wildfires that we have seen. In 2018, one such fire in California was called the Camp Fire, and it was the deadliest and most destructive wildfire in California's history. Uh, we're told that some 153,000 acres burned quickly, destroying more than 18,000 structures. The estimated cost of all the damages was over $16 billion. But the greatest cost was in lives, as 85 people lost their lives in this. And believe it or not, even though this was the greatest wildfire in California, it was only the seventh largest wildfire in the United States. But what was the cause of this? A spark from a faulty transmission wire. James wants us to think about how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, by such a small spark. And he goes on and says, And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the course of life, and set on fire by hell. Let's break down some of these phrases here. James tells us the tongue is a fire. What images come to your mind when you think about that? Don't you think about its potential to burn and destroy? He says the tongue is a world of unrighteousness. Think about how easily lies can fall from our tongues. How we can speak an untruthful statement that makes us look a little bit better. Or speak that harmful gossip that destroys another person's reputation. Maybe just the sly innuendo, the mild hint of a suggestion of wrongdoing that can topple someone's entire life's work. James, no doubt, has some of the wisdom literature in mind. For example, in the book of Proverbs, we're told that a harsh word stirs up anger and the mouth of fools pours out folly. A gentle tongue is a tree of life but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Or maybe to the point of our study today, a worthless man plots evil, and his speech 
is like a scorching fire. James tells us that the tongue is set among our members. It's, it's a part of our body, and yet it stains the whole body. Again, Motier is helpful. He says, left to itself, since the tongue is involved so fundamentally in all the thoughts, imaginings, longings, and plans which lie behind the whole of our earthly life, it leaves the mark of its own defilement everywhere. James tells us as well that the tongue is set on fire by hell. What an interesting thought. What an interesting concept. He seems to suggest that there is spiritual allegiances at work in the way that we use our words. And he says here, our tongue is set on fire by hell. This is the only time outside the, the teaching of Jesus that, that word hell, which is Gehenna in the Greek, is actually used. At the time of Jesus, Gehenna was the valley outside the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the city of God or the city of the peace of God. And outside was this valley where trash was burned, but not only trash. In Israel's history, this was also the place of idolatry and places where they sacrificed their children. In fact, hundreds of years before the time of Christ, uh, God spoke to the prophet Jeremiah and said this, They have built the high places of Topheth, which means the place of fire, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, which in Greek is Gehenna, or the way we translate it, hell. To burn their, their sons and their daughters in the fire. James says that place that has such a sordid history in Israel, outside the city of Jerusalem, where people not only burn trash, but where they engage in idolatry and even sacrifice their own children by offering them to the gods of the surrounding nations. That is the place that sets on fire our tongue. Craig Blomberg in his commentary said, given Jesus' conception of Gehenna, or hell, as a place of unquenchable fire, James's use of the term for the ignition of the tongue follows naturally. James goes on and says, for every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Think about this. All manners of wildlife have been tamed by mankind. And some of those pictures are so endearing. I have an account that I follow of a man who, who plays with lions. I'm just like, that's such a beautiful, I think it's a wonderful picture of the, the new heavens and new earth that's to come. But even the, the king of the jungle... This ferocious beast has been tamed by mankind. And yet James says, despite all humans' ability to tame the wild, there is one aspect of the wild they cannot tame, and that is this wild within themselves, described as the tongue. He says it's a restless evil. It could be translated as an unstable evil or an uncontrollable evil. And he said it's full of deadly poison. Think about this. Elements that are poisonous are oftentimes labeled with a symbol to warn us of the poison. But what if our tongue <laughs> came with a warning label? I found this graphic, and I just had to include it here. This is what James is getting at here. The tongue is a deadly poison, he says. And he goes on and says, with it, with our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. 
From the same mouth come both blessings and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. James is making us uncomfortable, isn't he? We use our tongues to praise God, and with it, we curse or cuss people out. I'm reminded of the time when I was meeting with my elders at a breakfast establishment here in town, and I noticed that our waitress had tattoos on her arms, and so I just made the comment that it said, it looks like you've been collecting tattoos. And she said, I have. And she told me the number of tattoos that she had, and I asked her which one was her favorite, and she said it was the one on her back, which was a lotus flower. And I asked her if it had specific meaning, and she said, yes, it signifies just growth and, and power and beauty. And um, she went and just left our table at that time. We continued on with our meeting. And she came and stopped back by later on and said, are you guys with the church? Because you probably heard some of the things that we were talking about. And, and we said, yes, we are. And we're at the church called Mercy Hill. She said, where, where does it meet? And we told her it meets here in this hotel. And uh, one of our elders said, well, it starts at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning. If you could ever make it, we'd love to have you. And she says, well, I work on Sunday mornings. And, um, and I can't make it. And I asked her a question. I said, excuse me if this is too personal, but do you consider yourself a follower of Jesus or are you just exploring faith? And she told me that she had been raised in a small town that had um, just a single church. And she said, everyone in that church was a hypocrite. She said that they would go to church and sing and worship God, but they were the most unloving people that she has known. And she says, I haven't really changed what I believe but I can't be around those kind of people anymore. And I just told her, I'm so sorry to hear what you've experienced. I said, followers of Jesus should not treat others like that. And um, I said that there, there's lots of folks who will, who will use religion or even Christianity to make themselves look good, but it doesn't really change their hearts. And I just told her, I'm, I'm sorry for that. And she said, exactly. She's like, when I work here on Sunday mornings, people who come in from church afterwards and they, they eat here, and then they cuss me out because I get their drink wrong. And my heart just broke for her. As James says at the end of verse 10, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. Why do we use our tongues to praise the Lord and then turn around and use our tongues to be cruel to other people? This shouldn't be happening, James says. And then he says, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So let's ask the question, what wisdom is James wanting us to learn? A couple times already in this letter, he's brought up the issue of our speech, and now he does a deep dive on our speech. What is he wanting us to learn? What is he wanting us to see about ourselves? What is he wanting us to consider? That would be good for us to reflect on, even beyond our time together today. Let me suggest that since it is humanly impossible to tame the tongue, we should look to the one with whom all things are possible. You and I, my friends, do not have the power to tame this little piece of muscle that is in our mouth. It is impossible. But with God, Jesus tells us all things are possible. So a couple points of application as we wrap this up. The first one is this. Let's connect this teaching of James back to Jesus. Now, James wasn't a follower of Jesus during his public ministry. He thought he was a bit crazy, but he became convinced of who Jesus was um, by the resurrection 
saw his brother come back from the dead. But no doubt he was around Jesus a lot. And I'm reminded of this time when Jesus used his words and said this to the religious leaders in his day who were accusing him. He said, you brood of vipers. Jesus isn't merely engaging in name-calling here. He's asking them to understand their spiritual origin, which goes back to the book of Genesis, which talks about the, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus was trying to wake them up to see their spiritual allegiance is demonstrated in the way that they are treating and speaking to Jesus. But notice what Jesus said here. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The heart, in biblical terminology, is not that organ that pumps blood through our bodies. It's, it's the core of our being. This graphic, I have the organ <laughs> that pumps blood through our bodies. But just think about that as, as the core of our being. Jesus says, for out of the mouth... I'm sorry, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what comes out of you is what is inside of you. Think back upon this last week and some of the things that you said. Maybe you didn't even say them, but the the words were forming on your tongue. Where did those come from? According to Jesus, it comes from our heart. And if we tie what... Jesus is saying, to what James is saying, our hearts then can be set on fire by hell. And I made this point with us before, but it's worth revisiting again. My words reveal my heart. My words show people, they demonstrate to people what's going on inside me. I love the way that Sinclair Ferguson put it in an article on the power of the tongue. He said, our mouth is the hinge on which the door into our souls swing open in order to reveal our spirit. In effect, our words are like so many media people rushing to file the reports on the condition of our soul. Maybe at this point you're like me and thinking about the words of Isaiah the prophet who said, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. It doesn't take much time for us, does it? And speaking about our words, for us just to realize how wrong so many of them are. But let's also remember that Jesus was nailed to the cross by our words. At the time that he lived, there's a conspiracy between the religious leaders of his day and the Roman authorities to put Jesus to death. They even had to hire some people to lie about what Jesus said. They took things that Jesus said out of context, making him say things that he wasn't saying. He was taken by Pilate, who didn't care what truth was, and sentenced to death, and he was scourged with Roman soldiers who were experts in torture. Imagine the mocking as they beat him to within an inch of his life. We know they mocked him when they put a crown of thorns upon his head and a robe, a purple robe around his body and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And he was nailed 
by the words of Pilate to that Roman cross. We were also told in the scriptures that when that was going on on the human level, God was working our redemption. And part of that redemption was laying upon Christ the sins of our words so that they can be condemned in his body so that we can experience grace and forgiveness. Remember what the Apostle Peter said. Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When Jesus was hanging on that cross, his life bleeding out of him, in excruciating pain, with the crowds mocking him, the people crucified next to him mocking him, Jesus, with his words, said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. There's ever a time when the Son of God could have used words in a very cruel fashion. It would have been then, and probably none of us would have said that was bad for him to do. Peter says in the next breath, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus himself bore the penalty and the pain of our words in his body on that tree so that we might die to sin and the way we use words wrongly and live to righteousness, that we might use our words righteously. Think about everything that comes to us because of Christ's death on the cross. Forgiveness. Adoption into God's family. Welcome into the eternal kingdom of God. Power to live for him. It's interesting. When Jesus came back from the dead, he was walking with some of his disciples along the word, and he was opening the scriptures to them, using his words to teach them how everything in the scriptures pointed to him. And they said this, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Jesus was a master at using his words. He never spoke a word out of turn. His words brought healing. And even when he had to speak difficult words of confrontation, like he had to do oftentimes with the religious leaders, they were always meant to show them the error in their ways and that caused their eyes to come open. Here's a final point of application. Let's bring our words under the lordship of King Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus... If there's any sense in which you say, I believe that he is the king and the savior of the world, then it follows that if he has redeemed us, then he has rights over our life. And as disciples, that is, as students of Jesus, we need to learn to use our words like he used words. And so it might be entirely appropriate for us to say things like this. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Maybe for some of us, we need to have an honest conversation with God about how we have neglected this important area of life, the use of our words. I mentioned earlier, probably some of us don't pay much attention to our words, just like we don't pay much attention to the air we breathe. They're just a part of our life. But what if we started paying attention to our words, the way that we speak to our employees, the way we speak to our employer, the way we speak to our family, the way we speak to the waitress, or the clerk at the store. Of course, we can always pray, open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. What are these 
writers doing here? They're bringing their words under the lordship of their creator and redeemer. And we are called to do so as well. Think about these words from the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul thinks it's entirely within the realm of possibility now that Christ is Lord of your life for you to bring your words under the lordship of Jesus. And so that whatever you do, whatever you say, whatever words you speak, you do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to the Ephesians and said this, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. My friends, what if everyone in Bryan College Station took this teaching of James to heart? What if everyone was sobered about the destructive power of the tongue? What if everyone wanted to bring their words under the lordship of Jesus? Can you imagine how our city would change? Can you imagine how many relationships would be healed? Can you imagine how life would flourish here? You say, John, well, that's never going to happen. Maybe not. Might be too much to expect. But what if just the Christians in Bryan College Station brought their words under the lordship of Jesus? What if we were so blown away by the gospel of Jesus Christ and that he suffered on the cross for the things that I say and yet still forgives me? That I wanted to bring everything I say, every word that comes out of my mouth under the lordship of Jesus so that it is done in the name of Jesus to bring him glory and honor. Wouldn't that be something? That may be too much to expect from Brian College Station. What if this Mercy Hill Church brought our words under the Lordship of Jesus? What if we admitted our inability to control our tongue and yet brought our tongue under the Lordship of Jesus with whom all things are possible so that we bless and don't curse? Wouldn't that be something? My friends, may the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in the sight of our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer.